0: Tonight, we are starting a brand new series of lessons. We're just calling it The Men of Matthew. Uh, we finished up Jesus and the End Times last week, and uh, that was, I enjoyed that series of studies very much. But we're doing something a little different. I've never done a series of lessons quite like this because I've done character studies and I've done studies on different books. But what we're going to do is we're going to do a, a number of character studies from one book. Because there are a number of men in the book of Matthew. And each one of those have the things that we can learn from them, from their lives, from their failures, from their successes. And so we're going to just look at some of the men uh, of the, that are in, listed in the book of Matthew and, uh, and see what we can learn from those. And we're going to begin this series in a kind of an unusual place. Because we're going to begin by taking a look at Herod and all that that name means in the New Testament. And, and I'm just going to be honest with you right from the beginning and tell you that that I've struggled with this one a little bit and the reason I say that is because no matter what I do no matter what I tried to do it it comes out sounding like a history lesson and so so just hang in there with me tonight because I'm going to give you a a great deal of material about Herod Uh, nevertheless I don't think it would hurt anybody to know a little bit more about the Bible than when they came in amen so tonight we're going to be uh, doing a great deal of teaching material. There's some historical material in here. There's some uh, background concerning the personality of Herod in the New Testament. But I will tell you this, the, the devotional application to the life of a Christian out of, out of such a uh, consummate villain as Herod, let's just say it is a wee bit difficult to find. And so you're, you're, you, this is not going to be a strong emotional message or anything like that. There is an application we're going to make at the end and some things that we can learn from it, but but this is a teaching. It's a Bible study. So so get out your pen, get out your notebook, grab your Bible, and we're going to get in, do some serious teaching on Herod tonight. So if you have your Bible, we're just going to read one passage. We're actually going to read the entire chapter. And we're not going to read every reference to Herod, but uh, this is just one that's kind of probably the most well-known part uh, or or thing that he did. And so if you you have your Bible, turn to the book of Matthew, and we're going to read chapter 2 together, beginning in verse 1. This is what it says. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. excuse me, and he rose and took the child and and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, uh, throughout the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels and in the Acts of the Apostles, there is, there is reference made to the name of Herod multiple times. And we, when, when you read the New Testament, you, you may read over and over and over again about Herod. And you, you read how he dies in one chapter, and then he's on the next page. And then he's in the next book, and then he shows up in Acts 30 or 40 years later, And it can be quite confusing when you begin to look at this. The reason is because throughout the New Testament, there are four generations of people that are called Herod. There is Herod the Great. He's the one who's concerned with the birth of Jesus, a story that we've just read Uh, in Matthew chapter 2, the slaying of all the male children under the age of two in Bethlehem. Imagine the slaughter that took place uh, in, in an entire city, and all the surrounding area, every male, male child, two years of age and, and younger, slaughtered. That, that is the handiwork of Herod, we'll put it in quotation marks, the great. Then there is Herod Antipas. It was he who slew John the Baptist and was king at that time. And, and by the way, when I use the word king tonight, I'm using it very guardedly. I'll come back to that in a little bit. But he was king at the time. At the at the at the death of Jesus as well. Then there was Herod Agrippa the first, Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I was the king at the time of Acts 12, uh, at the execution of James, James and the imprisonment of Simon Peter. You, Peter, you can read that in Acts chapter 12. That was the first persecution of the church. Then there was Herod Agrippa II, Herod Agrippa the second. and he was, you read about him in Acts 25 and 26, and he appeared in the governor's palace to send Paul the apostle to Caesar in accordance with Felix, the governor. And you'll remember that Paul was on trial. And I'm counting on the fact that you remember a lot of these things. And he, Paul was on trial and he had been sent to uh, Caesarea to stand trial there before the Roman governor, whose name was Festus, who was later then succeeded by a man named Felix. Uh, and then while, while that was going on, that's when Agrippa II came and Paul was sent to Rome to appear before Caesar. So we have the, the fourth generation that was partly responsible, at least, for the imprisonment and ultimate, ultimately the decapitation of Paul the Apostle. So you have Herod the Great, Herod Antip- Antipas, Herod Agrippa I, and Herod Agrippa II. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you just a little family background on this illustrious family called the Herod family. They spring from a man named Antipas. He, he was an, an Edomite. And Edom at the, at the time was a city that was carved out of rock. And it was an area, uh, the city had the appearance of being red due to the characteristics of the stone and the, and the clay in which the area that was built. So it had this reddish look. The Edomite armies were also dressed in red. They were known as the Reds, if you will. However, their their name, the Reds, actually springs from another name, from a man who is the father of the line that produced the Edomites. Let me just do a little quiz here. Does anybody remember from whom the Edomites come? Who was the father of the tribe of the Edomites? Anybody remember? No guesses? Esau. The Edomites all come, when you read anything about the Edomites, you know that they are descendants of Esau. Esau, the man of flesh, the man in bondage to his own appetite, the man who sold his own birthright, and and the the whole line of the Edomites sprang from Esau. And it's appropriate then, especially when we begin to understand uh, a little bit about these these men, it's appropriate that Antipas and his lineage should spring from Esau because Esau was in bondage to his flesh and his desires, and we'll see that very much is true about the Herods. Well, Antipas or Antipas, I don't know how you say it, but uh, uh, he died in 78 B.C. and his, na- his son, whose name was Antipater, and, and who was a, he was, happened to be a great friend of Julius Caesar, he was then appointed, Julius Caesar, because of his friendship, appointed Antipas as the king of Judea. Now, when that happened, this just galled the Jews to no end. Because, uh, because the, these Edomites, even though they're, they're from the same region, they're, they're obviously Semitic people. They all come from Abraham. But they're from the line of Esau, not from the line of Jacob. So they are not Jews. Therefore, he was not acceptable at all to the Jews to be king over them. However, Julius Caesar liked Ant- Antipater. And so and they were friends. And what he really wanted was a puppet king. So from this moment on, when we talk about Herod the king, we need to remember that he is a king who exists at the suffrage, at the whim of the world government of Rome. The only reason he's a king is because those that are really in charge said, oh yeah, sure, you can do that here. He's king so long as whomever is, is Caesar, whether it's Caesar Augustus, Caesar Tiberius, Caesar Caligula, Caesar Julius, whoever it is, Herod is king. As long as whomever is Caesar in Rome Rome allows him to be king. But even though he has that title, he's nothing more than a puppet government. He's nothing more than a puppet king. So Antipater was made the king of Judea. Now, you'll remember maybe from your history that Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 B.C. And then soon after his death, and we all know You know, there was the Shakespeare wrote a big play about it and everything. And we, we, but soon after his death, Herod the Great was appointed to succeed Antipater, but he was appointed by Mark Antony. Now let me remind you of your Roman history in case you're a little rusty on that. I was a little rusty before I started uh, preparing this, but I want you to see, I want you to see the New Testament in line with history, because sometimes we we see the New Testament over here as having this great spiritual application in my life, and it does; it's true. But we we it's easy to get it out of sync with everything that was going on in the world at the time. And sometimes, what was going on in the world at the time in history really helps you understand what is happening or what's being said at that time. So, so uh, I want to I want you to be able to see this in line with the actual historical timeline. So. 44 years before Jesus was born, Julius Caesar was assassinated in the Senate. You'll remember that civil war took place right after that. And there was a temporary government under Mark Antony. He was trying to take over and uh, he wanted to be the ruler of Rome. And uh, we all know ultimately it didn't work out, but he had this temporary government. And Mark Antony during that time appointed Herod the Great as the procurator of of Judea, as the sort of the king of of the entire region. Now in the writings of Flavius Josephus, and anybody here ever, ever heard of the name Josephus? I know some of you had. He, he was a Jewish historian, very uh, uh, very reliable source. He was not a Christian. He never followed Christ, but he, he was a Jewish man who wrote down the history uh, d- during that time. And so anyway, in the writings of Josephus was a uh, he, he writes something that, that is almost shocking when you begin to put all these t- together. Uh, during all of this massive civil war that was rupturing the, the Roman Empire, Cleopatra came to Judea and she demanded uh, Judea from, from Mark Antony as a possession of Egypt. She, she's, and you know, she was the queen of Egypt, and she said, she went to Judea and told Mark Antony, she said, I want Judea to belong to me. So uh, Flavius Josephus, this great Jewish historian, wrote of this arrangement. He said that Antony was so totally and completely in bondage to Cleopatra's affections that he made a monstrously stupid political decision. And he made Judea a present to Cleopatra. Now here, I want you to think about this. If Rome wanted to make a decision that would precipitate rebellion in Judea, precipitate rebellion in Israel, wouldn't it be that they would take a conquered country that is a Jewish nation, then appoint an Edomite as, as a king, and then give the whole thing to an Egyptian queen? From that moment on, it was absolute disaster. Now, in the course of having achieved this possession, Flavius records that, that Cleopatra... Made a journey, an actual journey to Judea, and there she attempted to seduce Herod the Great into an adulterous relationship with her. However, Herod was terrified of the political and military implications. He was he, he, he was having nightmares of Antony marching uh, with all the legions of Rome marching on on Jerusalem. So. The adulterous relationship was never consummated, and he was able to get Cleopatra out of his borders. He was frightened of that because, as, as we all know, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra were involved uh, in a relationship. They were, they were uh, in love with one another, or at least in love, lust with one another, I don't know which. And so King Herod, Herod the Great was smart enough to realize, listen, the guy who appointed me, his lover is Cleopatra, and she's trying to seduce me if I give into this, this is really bad news. So he was at least smart enough to figure that out. Well, then later on, as you know, Antony was killed in, in a sea battle and Cleopatra killed herself. But through all of that, Herod the Great managed to survive. And that tells you something about him. In the middle of all of that turmoil, he had been appointed by Mark Antony. But when Mark Antony was dead, Herod the Great remained. He was able to keep Rome pacified, that tells you a little bit about how politically astute he really was. Now, Herod the Great, again, he was the one who, who, uh, who, who killed all the, the, the two-year-old males and younger, but he had seven sons by a number of different wives. Uh, he, his sons were Herod Archelaus, Herod Antipas, Herod Philip I, Antipater, uh, Philip II, Alexander, and, and Aristobulus. There's not going to be a test on these later, so don't worry about remembering all those names. But all out of all those seven sons, three of his sons are in the New Testament in a very, very complicated set of circumstances, a very seedy and, and ugly set of circumstances that is absolutely evil beyond words. However, it is there, and it's complicated, and it's hard to figure out because of all, you'll see why it's hard to figure out because of, of the way that it's all twisted together. You'll see what I mean, why it's hard to figure it out. But it's hard to figure out because it talks about Herod doing this and then and the King doing that and this brother and that brother and all these things. It's gonna, you'll see it's just jumbled up. So I want to give this to you so that you'll be able to understand when you read the New Testament what happened. Three of these sons relate very directly to the death of John the Baptist, his, his beheading. And it happened like this. The fourth son of Herod the Great, the uh, the one who is not mentioned in the New Testament, is Aristobulus. Now, Aristobulus had a daughter whose name was Herodias. And you might recognize that name. Herodias was evidently a very, very beautiful woman. But she married, or at least ancestrally moved in with, uh, married illegally, her own uncle, Herod Philip, uh, who was Aristobulus' brother, so she married her father's brother. Against civil law, against Jewish law, she married her father's brother, Herod Philip. Well, then, that was when Herod the Great was still king. Then Herod the Great died, and Herod Antipas came to the throne in his place. When Herod Antipas came to the throne, it was at that point, that he stole Herodias from his own brother, Philip. All right, some of you guys, you got the faces going already. Listen, it gets worse. Why do you hear? This family is so evil. It's just, it's, I mean, I shouldn't be laughing, but it's just, it's just more than you can even believe. So, so he stole Herodias from his own brother, Philip. So now get this, get this horrible little evil little triangle. Here is Herodias, the granddaughter of Herod the Great, by her father Aristobulus who is in an incestuous re- uh, marriage with her own uncle, Philip, who then moves into an, another incestuous relationship, uh, uh, really an incestuous, adulterous relationship with a man whom she is not married to, either legally or illegally, and who is, still, who is still yet another uncle named Herod Antipas. Now, do you remember the story where John the Baptist was thrown into prison by Herod You remember that part? It says that Herod uh, put him into prison because John the Baptist proclaimed that it was illegal and immoral for him to have his brother's wife. And that's as far as the New Testament gets into it. That's all it really says. And and you don't get this uh, until you read and and get some history outside of that. So I I want you to get the picture here now. Why would Herod Antipas be so angry? Well, first of all, who is he? Which Herod is this? He's, this is not the same Herod who killed all these children. This is, by now, this is the third Herod. Herod the Great killed all the children. Then we just read in Matthew 2 that his son Archelaus took the throne. And now we have Herod Antipas at the throne. He has come through the death of his father and the, and the, the death of, of Archelaus. He has come to the throne. And he is living in an incestuous, incestuous adulterous relationship with his niece, who, whom he has stolen from his brother. And he has, in the process, had her father, Aristobulus, poisoned. So this is just a, this is just a really swell guy, right? So John the Baptist comes into the streets of Jerusalem preaching against a Politically and religiously detestable situation. He says, this is evil. The, 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 the king has no right to be living with his niece. So Herodias, she's no innocent bystander in all of this. She presses on her uncle, husband, slash lover to have John the Baptist killed because she wants to shut him up. She wants to get him off the streets preaching. She doesn't like this embarrassment. She doesn't want to be called out in her sin. She wants her sin and she wants people to shut up about it. She, she doesn't want John the Baptist calling out those in authority. However, Herod Antipas, is, he's a politician and he's afraid to kill John the Baptist because John the Baptist is so popular with the people. Therefore, instead of killing John, he just puts him into prison. However, to paraphrase an old saying, hell hath no fury like a woman who hates a prophet. Uh, And so she just waits and bides her time. Now Herodias has a daughter, but it's not Herod Antipas' daughter. She has a daughter from her previous marriage with her uncle Philip. Now this this, uh, this is not Herod Antipas' daughter, This is her first uncle-slash-husband's daughter. Now, this girl, whose name is not mentioned in the New Testament, but from other sources, uh, both Roman documents and the historian Josephus, we know that her name was Salome. Now, this girl, Salome, is brought into the palace to dance on her mother's lover's birthday. And evidently, the dance was so lascivious and evil that Herod, and, and you must read between the lines... But Herod and Antipas says, I will give you even half my kingdom. Anything you want, up to half of the kingdom, it's yours. Now, from Josephus and his writings and understanding the character of this man, we have to understand that he is probably not just simply a generous patron of the arts, right? Are we communicating here? Uh, He is... we know from, from what Josephus wrote and from what we can what we know about him he 's expecting sexual favors in return for what he wants to give them and in, fa- in fact, Josephus tells us later that Herod Antipas later actually married Salome. I mean this just I mean just get this relationship. Salome then is now by that time he 's living with her great uncle Herod Antipas, who is actually her mother 's lover because her mother has left her real father, who was actually her mother's uncle, who had him murdered. It's just this really wonderful, wonderful family. You know, this is really close-knit family is what they are. Uh, they have a real sense of the family that plays together, stays together, you know. And, and I'm, being, I'm being a little flippant about it, but, but I want you to see that the palace in Jerusalem is in the hands of phenomenally wicked people. Wicked in every way. Politically, they, they are treacherous, lecherous, murderous, lying, deceitful, disloyal, immoral, only for political advantage. It's all about their power. The whole line of Her- Herod's is filled with people who kill their wives, kill their husbands murdered their own children. They murdered their, their very own children just to keep their children from ascending to the throne because they either they didn't want them to take it too early or they wanted a, a, you know, an, a nephew or somebody else to have, have the throne. So, so the throne moved around in this whole line of Herod's for four generations in such a nightmare of sexual and political evil that even the Romans were shocked. Josephus records that, that even the government in Rome was shocked at the incestuous immorality of the king of Judea. And it must have been a shocking moment when John the Baptist preached publicly about the evils of the Herodian household. Now do you see the setting? John the Baptist arrives in the midst of the splendor of the Roman empire, the domination of foreign troops, the arrival and departure of people like Cleopatra and Mark Antony, the death of Julius Caesar, the rise of one king after another, and a palace in Jerusalem that is filled with the most wicked deeds imaginable. And the people are left in confusion. The priesthood is completely reprobate. And out of nowhere, this bloke arrives in in the wilderness in camel's hair and leather sandals, eating locusts and wild hunting, who says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now now does the scene of the beginning of the New Testament begin to make more sense to you? Do you you see, do you get a sense of the shocking character of this thing? So anyway, going back to the story. So when Salome dances for her great uncle, uh, uh, who is also her mother's lover, we see that her mother was really behind it all the time and, and she's put her up to this. So Salome knows how to answer that offer when he says, I'll give you anything. Up to half my kingdom, I'll give you anything. She looks at Herod Antipas and she says, I only want one thing. I I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And now, because he had all these people around, he can't go back on his word because he said, I'll give you anything. He's forced to do the murderous deed that he's been trying to avoid. So Herod Antipas sends to the prison and has John the Baptist beheaded. They bring the head of John to Salome, this, this lascivious teenager, to mock there in the palace at Jerusalem. Now, later on in the New Testament, there are two other Herods that show up. There is Herod Agrippa I, who, as I, as I mentioned before, was responsible for a, a great deal of the persecution of the early church in Acts chapter 12. There's also Herod Agrippa II, and if you'll remember, I just want to remind you of some of these things so you have these names in your mind. In Acts 25 and 26, um, you remember the, the story when Paul the Apostle was on trial before the, Felix the governor. It says that Herod Agrippa and, and Bernice arrived to hear Paul the Apostle. Well, there's more, there's more to this because Bernice is actually Herod's sister. So Herod Agrippa II and Bernice and the governor, whose name is Felix... Hear Paul's trial. Uh, The the governor before Felix was named Festus. And Festus, we're told, in another place, we're told that he was married to a woman named Drusilla. Well, guess who Drusilla is? She's the other sister of Herod. So they're just all over the place. So you have Herod Agrippa II and his sister Bernice hearing the trial, trial of Paul the Apostle the other sister, Drusilla, is married to another Roman civil servant. Now, and it's not clear the way that the New Testament talks about Agrippa and Bernice, but, but it doesn't, it's not clear that they're brother and sister. It appears from the New Testament that they're more likely husband and wife. Uh, in fact, Josephus seems to imply that the relationship between Herod Agrippa II and Bernice, his sister, was much more like husband and wife than brother and sister. So it's just this whole family... Is just evil intertwined all over the place. You see that. So now that we've gone through that seedy scenario, now you can understand why I was saying that uh, making a devotional application when you study Herod is going to be a little difficult. Because you know when you when you read all this and when you learn all this about the family, you're like, okay, now what's the lesson in that? What can I learn from this? Well there are things that we can learn. The first thing is that we can learn the difference between outward appearance and true reality. See, the Herods had all the outward appearance, all the outward trappings, all the appearance of power. But the fact of the matter was that they were puppets of the Roman Empire. They had little control over their own destiny and their own lives, and they had no control whatsoever over their own government. They had the appearance of wealth. But the fact of the matter is they only had a stolen kingdom with stolen goods supplied to them by Roman thieves. They had the outward appearance of being Jews, but the fact of the matter was that they were Edomite uh, pretenders. They had the outward appearance of concern for the people, Even, even maybe an outward appearance of patriotism that they love Israel. But the fact of the matter is they built city after city, fortress after fortress, and they constantly strengthened Rome's hand in its grasp on the throat of Israel. They even gave, or at least tried to give, the outward appearance of being religious. Here's what I mean. Herod the Great is known more than anything else for one thing. And I'm talking beyond the New Testament, beyond anything else in all the world history, Herod the Great is known For one thing. Does anybody know what that is? Anybody remember? It was for the rebuilding of the temple. Herod's temple. And there are only two men in all of history that built the temple in Jerusalem. Solomon and Herod the Great. And one might, uh, on a cursory examination, even be tempted to think, wow, the... The hand of God must have been with him. If Solomon built the temp, the original temple and, and God uh, uh, would allow Herod to rebuild it, he must have had a concern for the religious qualities of the people. Well, the truth is Herod had a tremendous insight into engineering and he had a desire to used that creative technique. It was Herod the Great who built Masada. It was Herod the Great who built the Herodium. It was Herod the Great who built city after city and aqueduct after aqueduct and wall after wall. And the temple was just simply another pearl on the string of the great list of credits. Furthermore, he built the temple because he wanted to pacify these Jewish people who knew that he was not their king, that he was not a Jew, and that he didn't worship their God at all. Herod the Great, yeah, he built the temple of Jerusalem. But you know what? He also built pagan temples for pagan gods right there in the Holy Land. In other words, the outward appearance and the inward reality for all of these Herods were so completely different from each other that we are shocked when we even get close to to these people named Herod and to all of those in, in their line. When we say Herod, Uh, any of the Herods We're shocked when we get close to them. But isn't this the way that evil is? Haven't you ever, haven't you seen this over and over again? Haven't we seen it outside the church, inside the church, in politics, in the world, and in every discipline of life? Haven't we seen it over and over and over and over again? A, A thing can have the outward appearance of great success and yet be totally corrupt inside? A thing can have the outward appearance of being holy and yet be wicked on the inside. A a person or a thing can have the outward appearance of being strong and yet be weak inside. A thing can have the outward appearance of being mighty and yet actually be in its last days. You know, when we were living in South Carolina, a developer, uh, we lived... Um, I don't know, I think it was about seven miles from the church, not seven miles outside of town, but just a short distance outside of the city limits there in, in Georgetown. And so there was a stretch of highway there that there wasn't, wasn't a lot of uh, development there, but a developer there bought a stretch of land that was right next to Winyaw Bay there in Georgetown. And and they were developing a large subdivision, kind of a, uh, somewhat exclusive uh, uh, subdivision they were going to do it. And, and when they did it, they were building the roads going through there and everything, they, they built two entrances into this subdivision and one entr- entrance was here and then down the road further, there was another entrance and it was the roads went back there and you could go either way. Uh, but uh, but it, it, at one of those entrances, it was kind of the main entrance. They, uh, they had done a lot of clearing because there's a lot of trees in South Carolina. Um, they had done a lot of clearing to, to make way for the construction, all that kind of thing. But right at, right, right uh, uh, behind it, you, the driveway came in, and there was a big gate there, a beautiful sign. And right behind it, there was this huge, giant, beautiful oak, oak tree standing there at the entrance. I mean, it was, just, it was just phenomenal. It was picturesque. It was like a postcard kind of thing. And, and uh, anyway, one day... You know, it's like here, you're, you're prone to have storms roll through, and one day a storm blew through town. And, and sometime, the next day after the storm, I, I was driving to the office, and, and as I drove past the entrance to that s- new subdivision, I was absolutely shocked to see that during that storm, which the winds were elevated, but they weren't that bad, and I was shocked to see that, that, that in the midst of that storm, that tree had broken in half and it was there and most of the tree was lying on the ground. On the outside it looked so strong and so daunting and so massive as it was just guarding the entrance of this subdivision, but what no one knew was that although the tree looked strong and healthy on the outside, it was dead and rotten on the inside. That's what we can learn. The, the, from the one of the things we can learn from the Herods is that can it can look good, it can look strong, it can look powerful, it can look all these things, but but on the inside it can be completely different. Haven't we seen it also in individual lives? Haven't we seen it? Dare I say, at times within ourselves, where the outward appearance seems to be uh, such in such stark contrast to what's really going on inside? Haven't we seen it when we come to church and we're dying inside and we put on our little mask and smile and pretend like everything's okay when everybody else is around? I heard about a pastor's wife tell a story about one Sunday morning when she was trying to get her family to church, trying to get the family to Sunday school. The pastor was already at the church. He had gone earlier, so she was there. She was running late and she was trying to get the kids to the car and and she got two out of three kids in the car and she couldn't find the third one, you know, so she finally found the third child and got her out to the car. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Anybody ever experienced these things before? Anyway, this this woman was was standing after she finally got all the kids in the car. She's standing on the steps and she's pulling the door closed to, to, to the house to lock the door and little Emily from the car suddenly yells out, Mommy! I forgot my shoes. Well, this woman was just so taken aback in that moment, she yelled, forgot your shoes? Forgot you forgot your shoes? How do you forget your shoes? Well, just at that moment, she looked up and the next door neighbor who was just as lost as a ball in, the, in tall weeds, you know, she, she stepped out on the, on the doorstep there and, she, and the neighbor said, oh, hi, neighbor. And the pastor's wife just went from, you forgot your shoes, to, well, hi, Emily, darling, come in and get your shoes. You know, it just, it just happens spontaneous as anything. And I hear that story, and I think to myself that I've done that a million times. And you, probably you have, too. The, you know, I've used the, the illustration before. Uh, some family getting ready for church, and the kids are dragging their feet, because kids drag their feet, Right? And the kids are dragging their feet and you're, and you're finally, you're getting more and more frustrated and, and you know, you eventually grab this person that you love more than life by the throat. And you say, now you get ready and you get ready now. Cause we got to go to church and learn about the love of Jesus. And then you get in the car and, and tension is, you can, so you can cut it with a knife and, and you get in the car and everybody's mad and everybody's angry and, and the wife's like, don't look at me. You know, I wasn't looking at you. You know, it's, all this is going on. And then they get to church, they pull in the parking lot and dad gets out of the car and he's been, he's been angry. He's upset and he goes to slam the door. And just, then, just as he slams the door, one of his buddies from the church, one of the deacons of the church is standing in the parking lot and says, well, hello, the brother. And all of a sudden he slams the door, Well, hello, brother. God is so good, isn't he? Don't, don't we do that so easily? We do that so easily. So, we see not only some insights through the lives of the Herods of the disparity between outward appearance and inward reality, but you know what? We also see some insights that will help us understand the patterns of evil. The first thing we see is that Satan intends to have his way. And he is perfectly willing to escalate his tactics to get the desired results. If a lie will work, he'll use a lie. If a lie won't work, he'll use gossip. If that won't work, he'll use manipulation. If manipulation won't work, he'll use oppression. If oppression won't work, he'll use tyranny. If tyranny won't work, he'll use brutality. If brutality won't work, he'll use torture. If torture won't work, his ace in the hole is, is murder. He is a liar and the father of, of all lies. And he is also a murderer from the beginning. He is perfectly willing to use whatever tactics are necessary to achieve his end goal. Remember that. He is not a gentleman. He will not take pity on you. He will, and we're going to talk about this in a moment, if you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. Secondly, we can see that the pattern of evil in the history of the Herods is satanically inspired to stop the unfolding plan of God. This reveals to us, the the, the the monolithic evil in the world that, let's put it this way, there is a mind behind the evil and there is a plan behind the satanic activity. You know, I don't think for a moment that Herod in all his depravity and incestuous, lecherous evil and all his political machinations and, and, and his compromise with the Roman government, I don't think that he ever once uh, had that moment where he knelt down and said, all right, Satan, tell me anything I can do to stop the unfolding plan of God in human history to bring forth the Messiah. I'll do anything you want me to do. I, I don't think any of the Herods realized how totally and thoroughly he uh, was in the hands of Satan in his lifetime. That, that, that the, that the, I don't think you realize that the mind of Satan was behind the mind of Herod. I don't think you realize that the tyranny, his tyranny, was simply the outworking of a satanic plan to oppose God in human history. Think about it. Herod the Great commits genocide to wipe out the baby Jesus. Just as John the Baptist is announcing the coming of the kingdom of God, Herod Antipas cuts his head off. Just as Jesus is about to bring forth the full word of deliverance and salvation, Herod Antipas has him crucified, or at least compromised to have it done. Just as the New Testament church is being birthed in Pentecostal power, Herod kills James with the sword. Just as Paul the apostle is uh, is giving birth to the Gentile church, Herod hands him over to Caesar to be beheaded. Every time the work and ministry of God in the world was on the threshold of a new moment, the satanic application of evil through the Herods and through historical realities stepped into the gap to try to thwart and to foil the plan of God. So we see that Satan is at work. That's what's going on. In the depravity of the Herods, it's it's really not about how evil they were. It's that that they were so so given over to the enemy that the enemy was using them and destroying them at the same time. That's what he does. That's what he does. We also see through the Herods the reality that sin is, Well, put it this way. Sin comes in clusters. It is very difficult to keep sin at a safe distance. There's a a funny little song called Don't Let the Devil Ride. And it says this in the song. It says, don't let the devil ride. Because if you let him ride, he's going to want to drive. That is really actually a biblical truth. (laughs) You won't find it. It's stated exactly that way in Scripture. But, uh, but what we say to ourselves is, well, I'll tolerate lust of the eye, but I won't commit adultery. All, all right, I'll commit adultery with this girl, but I won't commit adultery anywhere else. All, all right, I'll, I'll lie, but I, but I won't steal. All, okay, well, I'll steal $5, but I won't steal $10. Okay, I might steal steal $10 from my store, but I won't steal $10 from my mom. Okay, okay, okay. I'll steal from my mother, but I'll only steal $10. All right, I'll I'll steal and I'll lie, but I won't kill. All right, I'll I'll steal, lie, and kill, but I won't torture anybody. You see, the person who does the most heinous thing, the whole most heinous sin you can imagine, didn't just start there. It was choices all along the way that led him to that place of horrible depravity. Do you understand what I'm saying? Listen, Satan will agree every single time time to whatever line we we draw in the sand. Satan will agree to anything. Any bargain you strike with with the enemy, he'll agree to it. We say, okay, you you can come in an inch. That's all. You can come in an inch, but that's all. He says, great. Great, that's all I want. I promise you I'll never ask for another inch. All I want is that one inch. That's all. Then he'll come in for that inch for a while. Then it'll be a foot. Then then a mile. Then 10 miles. We we see this in the Herods. The family just seems to totally disintegrate. You know, I I heard a story about a... uh, there's a news story a while back. Some, I don't this is not strong enough a word, but some knucklehead um, got the wise idea that it would be a novelty in the Western world to carry around a plane load of young Russian girls and take them to different places and, and then let them work as strippers. And people would come then to see Russian girls take their clothes off at the, just at the novelty of it. In preparation for this, he, in the process, he advertised in Russia to recruit girls for this. And he promised these families and these girls huge amounts of money and said that th- these huge amounts would be paid to any, any of those that were chosen for this. Well, U- UPI reported it, and it was just heartrending that, that The news story told of Russian mothers in, 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 traveling hundreds of miles to Moscow with their teenage daughters in hand forcing them to disrobe for the the judges. There there were detailed accounts of these young girls disrobing, their their hands shaking, their tears streaming down their face, some refusing to to cooperate, arguments between mothers and daughters in the hallway outside the room where the judging was taking place, the, the daughters pleading, please don't make me do this, please don't make me do this, and the mothers just saying, there's so much money here. My friends, listen to me. You you can see there in that story, you can see the end result of a nation that declared itself to be godless. Declared itself to be outside the law of God. You know, today you you hear politicians in America talking about things, you know, just using this as an example, talking about legalizing gambling. And, And they say, well, you know, there's so much money that exchanges hands on gambling, on sporting events, we may as well make money off of it. And, and I just want to say, aren't we going to draw the line anywhere? Is there, isn't there any place that we'll say, where we'll say no? And the politician says, oh, but you just, you just don't understand all the money that we can make. We're talking about money? I'm talking about the single mother who's desperate, who's longing for answers, who's hurting, who's willing to try anything that she possibly can to bail herself out of her situation so she bets her children's lunch money on a football game. Politicians tell us it's going to somehow prosper some program for the poor when, when the truth is it's the poor that get destroyed by gambling in the first place. It's infuriating, it's maddening. You know, I would, just, I would like to just take that politician's hand and stand him in that cold, long, lonely hallway outside the judge's room in Moscow as mothers force their daughters to take their clothes off for the sake of money. And, and, and they sell them into virtual prostitution for the ogling eyes of Western businessmen. And I want to say, don't you see? You move the line once, when do you stop moving it? You start out Herod the Great rebuilding the temple of Solomon. Do you think he stood there with his T-square in his hand and said, you know, in addition to building this temple, what I'd really like to do is leave behind a family that is completely consumed with lecherous evil, riddled with syphilis and disease, brought to murderous disaster, filled with pride and anxiety that will compromise with anybody, kill each other, until finally the Herods just disappear from the stage of human history. No, I don't think think he thought that at all. He just fudged the line. And then he fudged it again and again and again and again until finally he and his line alone account for every major assault on the plan of God in the entire New Testament. That's a family with a lot on on its account, isn't it? And you know, I know somebody maybe watching this, they're saying to themselves, yeah, that's all fine, but you know, Herod won. You, you know, it's okay for you to say all that, but all those babies got killed, but Herod, he's the one, who he still had a sword. It's okay for you to talk about righteousness and sin, but hey, Herod lived through it. He survived all those things. John the Baptist, now that was the sucker. He's the one who cried out for righteousness and in his generation, he called the politicians to account and they cut his head off. And Salome is dancing around his head on a platter, laughing at him and mocking him. It's all right for you to say all this, but hey, the babies in Bethlehem died. Listen, here's what I want to say. Psalm 37 tells us, don't envy the prosperity of the wicked. Because it will come to nothing. When all the evil is going on, when it seems like the Herods are winning you need to take the long view. Today's tyrant is tomorrow's forgotten villain. Today's political giant who pulls strings in Washington and people jump in California is tomorrow's unmasked fool. So I'm here to tell you, in the midst of a world where it seems like Herod's come to power so easily, think eternally. Think eternally. Get back from human history. Where is Herod now? Anybody have a guess on that one? I don't care which Herod you choose. (laughs) You can pick any of them. There's a pretty good chance that we know where he is. Where is Herodias? What about Salome? What about Caesar himself? Mark Antony, Cleopatra? Where are the great names that, that grace the stage of human history? They're gone with many of them in eternal damnation now. But where is John the Baptist? He's so close to the throne of God that most of us on the outer perimeter will never ever be able to see Him. Where are the little babies that were thrown into the air and caught on the sword points of Herod's soldiers in Bethlehem? The person who says, but Herod won. Well, where is Herod now? Where are those babies? Received into the arms of God. That's where they are. Where is Herod Antipas? In flames of everlasting hell. Where is James, who was killed by the sword? Well, he's talking with his half brother, Jesus. You know, a missionary, we're going to close with this. A missionary was traveling in Ghana a few years ago, and he stopped by, uh, he stopped at a a place, it's a Whitcliffe Summer Institute of Linguistics. He spent the night there, and the reason he actually spent the night there is because it was free. (laughs) I mean, missionaries are always looking for. Uh, way to, to, to save their budget. But anyway, he, he, he had been out in the bush for two weeks, and he was dirty and tired, and he needed a place to rest and get cleaned up before he headed back home. He was getting ready to head back to the States. And, and well, that night he was there, and he was talking with an, a friend of his, an African friend of his. And while he was talking, while they were talking, an elderly lady come, came out of her room down in into the hallway and started slowly walking down the hall, just... just Right, just hugging the wall and just running her hand along the edge of the wall, and finally, she came to a, a doorknob and opened the door and went in. And the missionary looked at his friend and said, "That lady's blind, isn't she?" And he said, "Yes, yes, she's blind. That that old lady is a German. She's been here in Ghana for forty-five years. She's going home to Germany. She's she's on her way home. She'll be leaving the day after tomorrow." And the missionary said, well, what's the matter with her? He said, well, she, she has river blindness and she's dying. River blindness is absolutely fatal, no cure. He said, she'll be, she'll be dead before the year is over. She's just going home to Germany to die. And the missionary said, well, does she, does she have family there? He said, well, only one sister. She's going home to sit in the back, home, right back room of her sister's small apartment in Frankfurt, Germany. And she's there. She's going to wait to die. Then the missionary said, well, who is she? Who is she? He said, she translated the entire New Testament into three different African languages. In 45 years, she gave the word of God to thousands of Ghanaians. On the way home, that missionary, this was a number of years ago, the missionary stopped in London the front page of the newspaper there in London had a picture of Muammar Gaddafi. And some of you are old enough, you remember Muammar Gaddafi. And the picture, it was him with thousands of cheering people and they were shooting guns off in the air and waving their rifles in the air, you know, just cheering this conquering hero. And they were screaming and yelling. And upon seeing this picture, the picture of the missionary just became very angry. He, he said, look at this guy. This, this tyrant, this, this criminal, he's hardly more than a cheap thug and thousands of people are cheering and proclaiming him a hero. And here's this poor little pitiful missionary lady who's given 45 years of her life to translate the New Testament. And she's going home to, to her family to, to die in a lonely apartment in Frankfurt. There are no crowds meeting her at the airport, nobody cheering. And he said, you know, it's just, it just, that just isn't fair. It just doesn't seem fair to me. And he, he was really kind of upset with the Lord. He said, Lord, is this, is this the way you, you treat your servants? This is it? Lady gives her whole life to you and goes home and dies blind in Germany with her family and nobody even cares? And God said to him, her family is not in Germany. Her family is with me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. And then God said, it isn't over yet. I believe that's what you can say about any of the dynasties of evil. Hitler, Mussolini, Herod the Great. Any horrible, evil, sinful dictator or evil leader that you can think of that has been or is yet to come, when they rise to power, say to yourself, it isn't over yet. When you look and you see what's happening in our nation and and, and what the leadership of our nation wants to do and the evil that they want to accomplish, you need to look at that and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not going to get discouraged. I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to get upset. I'm going to realize it's not over yet. God is still at work. God is still doing something. God is not limited. You see, the thing was, Satan tried to thwart the plans of God through the Herod family time and time and time again, but guess what? He wasn't able to stop it. It didn't work. Not once did any of those things work. So when you see those rise, those evil ones rise to power, say to yourself, it isn't over yet. And then... When the unnamed, unknown, unsung heroes of God die in poverty, unappreciated by their own generation, when you see that, you say, it isn't over yet. They may not have been rewarded here, but it is not over yet. Herod is gone, but King Jesus awaits us all. Bow your head and, and pray together with me. Father... I thank you so much, Lord God, that in the midst of a, of a wicked and perverse generation, we can say it's not over yet. In the midst of, of a time in the history of mankind where it just seems like there's so much evil and that, that, that those in power want to, to, to create and, and make so many evil things happen, so many things that are completely against the character and nature of who you are. God, in the midst of that, we say, I'm not worried because I know it's not over yet. Hitler is gone, but Jesus remains. Mussolini is gone, but Jesus remains. Herod the Great is gone, but Jesus remains. Those that are in power now will be gone, but Jesus remains. Those who rise in power and influence, who who do evil in the future, they will come and they will go, but Jesus remains. And Lord, for those that are serving you in in anonymity, that nobody knows who they are, nobody sees the work that they've done and they give their lives quietly and they die unnamed and unknown and in poverty and unappreciated by the generation around them, in the middle of that, Lord God, we say, hey, I don't have to worry about them. They're going to be with Jesus. It's not over yet. And God, in that we rejoice. And that's what gives us hope. In the middle of everything, God, we have hope. Because we know it's not over yet. And we rejoice in that tonight. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.